Welcome to Season 10 of American Political History, The North American Contest, Massacre at Fort William Henry. General Daniel Webb was left in New York to command the colonial defenses. His adversary in Canada had undertaken a massive native recruiting drive in 1756, and now in the campaign of 1757, he would be able to count the Abenaki, Chuganagua, Nipissing, Minomani, Ojibwa, Huron, Micmac, Macalite, Winnebago, Sauk, Fox, Miami, Delaware, and even a few minor warriors from the Iowa nations. By the end of July, they had assembled a force of 2,000 native warriors and 6,000 French regulars to attack Fort William Henry, which was located on Lake George in northern New York. The English garrison was 1,500. On August 3rd, the French would make their first moves, attacking the higher ground near the fort, and then beginning to encircle the fort by digging siege trench lines. Fort William Henry was clearly in trouble, but it was not far from desperate. The fort was equipped with 18 heavy cannons and 13 mortars. They had ample food supplies, ammunition, and had removed the flammable wood shingles from the fort, because the greatest danger in bombardment was the buildings catching fire. The French would intercept a message from General Webb, saying that reinforcements would not be coming until they had rallied them in New York or Massachusetts. The messenger was killed, and the French general, Montcloma, passed the message to the unfortunate commander of Fort William Henry, adding his personal comments. I suggest you take General Webb's advice and surrender. Colonel Moore declined the French general's offer, and the English garrison would defend the fort over the preceding days. By the seventh day, French howitzers were raining shrapnel. Half the guns he had had busted due to the furious pace with which they were firing them back at the French. They were running out of supplies, ammunition, and had not slept for five days due to the sounds of cannon fire. Colonel Moore called for a council of officers, and the next morning they raised the white flag of truce. By the afternoon, the terms of capitulation had been worked out. General Montcloma acknowledged Colonel Moore's highest professional standards and allowed the men to surrender with honor so long as they sign a pledge that they would be non-combatants for the next 18 months in which he would allow them to be on parole as they returned to their homesteads. The European war culture of agreeing to terms of honorable surrender were entirely alien to the cultures of the French's native allies and General Montcloma had concluded these negotiations without even consulting them. The natives had joined the French without pay, only asking for rations since they had expected plunder, trophy, and captives associated with the victories of war. When it became clear they were not to receive the proper spoils of war, they simply decided that they would take what was rightfully theirs. These events would become known as the Massacre of Fort William Henry. When the natives had become disappointed with the plunder that had been left in the fort, they would fall upon the hospital tents, killing the wounded English by scalping them alive as they lay in their hospital beds from injuries. Then they fell upon any stray English, not immediately protected by the French. One of the survivors within the French tent said, They they circled us like wolves, waiting for an opportunity to strike. When the French army columns began marching out, The captive English were at the back of the train, left unprotected by the French army. The natives took this opportunity to strike. Within minutes, 
They had killed most of the English captives. Survivals huddled together in terrified groups using sticks or rocks in a vain attempt to defend themselves. When the French attempted to intervene, this forced the natives to turn what was a captive English slave into a trophy by immediately killing and scalping them. By the time the French soldiers could regain control of the situation, 200 English lay dead. 500 had been taken somewhere in the woods as captives, and only 500 remained in French protection. By sunset, a force of 1,300 native allies had retreated into the woods with their prizes. Over the preceding months, General Montcloma would go to great pains to recover survivors, eventually recovering 200 of the 500 captured English. The massacre had damaged the French war effort. With the retreat of their native allies, Canada's campaign for that year stalled, forcing them to retreat back to Canada and take a defensive posture. As news of the massacre spread in colonial America, it helped spur the mobilization of thousands of militia from New York and New England, now willing to take arms if they were given the chance to punish the perpetrators of the massacre. Meanwhile, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, General Loudon was waiting until July 9th for Admiral Hallborn's squadron to arrive so he could begin his attack on Fort Louisburg. They faced weeks of fog and poor weather conditions. When August arrived, Admiral Hallborn advised Loudon to return to New York. Any attempted siege this late in the season would risk the whole army. Taking the Admiral's advice, Loudon would return to colonial America and a winter of colonial political resistance. More disputes in Massachusetts over quartering troops. Maryland had ignored his orders to garrison Fort Cumberland. And worst of all, there was major anti-recruitment sentiments in the colonies. Locals in Delaware, Connecticut, and Massachusetts going so far as to chase recruiters from their towns. And it got so bad in New Hampshire that a mob of civilians chased a recruiting officer four miles out of their town. Instead of hitting Loudon's militia quotas, the colonial governors just started telling him what they had managed to recruit. I am more a slave to business than any man alive. By having not only the affairs of an army to manage, but an army being divided into three or four different places, which each have to be planned for. Besides that, I am in an eternal negotiation with different governments 1,500 miles in length, where I am presented with all sorts of opposition and resistance. In Whitehall, William Pitt decided to relieve Lieutenant General Loudon. The loss of Fort William Henry, the retreat in the Ohio Valley, and the failure to secure a single victory that summer doomed him. William Pitt wanted to change the broader strategy of the war for England. England had no chance fighting France with armies in Europe. France had the largest and strongest army of the European powers. But France's navy was its weakness. Focusing on North America would make them overcommit their navy to defend far-off colonies. To counterbalance this new North American strategy, Whitehall would increase their subsidies to their Prussian allies to keep France's attention in Europe. Pitt's campaign for 1758 was not substantially different than Loudoun's. Destroy Fort Duquesne in the Ohio Valley, take Fort Louisburg to control the Straits of the St. Lawrence, destroy the French forts on Lake Champlain in order to attack Montreal, and destroy Fort Frontenac on Lake Ontario to cut off French support and control into the Ohio Valley. Pitt initially nominated Major General James Abercrombie, 
But after receiving advice from the general of the British army, Pitt would reconsider his nomination, selecting a set of young, fresh, talented army officers who were fully invested in the opportunity for honors that could come with victory in North America. They were promoted ahead of their more senior colleagues, and although talented, they would be operating forces much larger than they ever had in their careers, which would also be by far the largest armies ever operated in North America. Pitt selected Colonel Jeffrey Amherst, promoting him to the temporary rank of Major General in North America. He would arrive with an additional 14,000 redcoats for his army alone. Acting Brigadier General James Forbes would take charge of an expedition set to attack Fort Duquesne. He would lead a force of 2,000 redcoats and 5,000 colonial militia. General Abercrombie would lead an expedition of 12,000 to attack Ticonderoga. He would receive as an understudy and second-in-command of his expedition, Brigadier George Howell, who was one of the most promising field officers in the British Army. For the campaign of 1758, England would have a force of nearly 50,000 soldiers and militia in North America. That was a force totaling two-thirds of the population of all of Canada, and the English forces dwarfed the Canadian army of 7,000 regulars and 3,000 militia. And to compound French woes, they had failed to pay their allies after the victory of Fort William Henry. Canada, since then, had been far less supported by their traditional Algonquian allies. And on top of all of that, Canada was suffering the second straight year of drought, and when the Royal Navy successfully blockaded the Gulf of the St. Lawrence in the fall of 1757, Canada as a whole would be on the brink of starvation. The tables were now set for sweeping English victories, if they could capitalize. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.